Former heavyweight champions slip out of the news as easily as ex-presidents, but Muhammad Ali was never your garden variety champion of all the world. And yesterday in Los Angeles, he responded like a superhero when a distraught man threatened suicide. Terry Drinkwater reports. One January day in Los Angeles in 1981, a crowd gathered below as a distraught man dangled out of a ninth-story fire escape above, threatening to jump. Police negotiators, a chaplain, and a psychologist tried for hours to convince the young African-American man to come back inside, but they were unsuccessful. One of those who gathered below was Howard Bingham, who happened to be the public relations manager for Muhammad Ali, whom he knew happened to live only a few blocks away. After receiving the phone call from Bingham, Ali arrived about four minutes later. There is film and photographs of Muhammad Ali leaning out of a window on the ninth floor talking with Joe. He told Joe that he loved him, that he was his brother, that he was there for him. He listened and spoke with Joe for 20 minutes. And then Joe eventually gave in, curled up into Ali's arms as he pulled him back inside. No doubt about it, a police spokesperson was quoted as saying, Muhammad Ali saved that man's life. The champ, who earned his name showing he could knock him down, on this day showed he had the skills to talk him down. Today on Stories and Strategies, the critical techniques and training needed for de-escalation. My name is Doug Dales. My guest today is Dr. Yasmeen Kramadine. Hello, Dr. Kramadine. Hello, Doug. And you're joining us today up the highway again from the capital of Alberta in Edmonton. How is the, they call it the Chuck. How is the Chuck today? Uh, the Chuck is all right. Given recent COVID restrictions, Edmonton is actually very quiet today. Yeah. Um, but I guess the good thing is that there's always sun. There's always sunshine. We get lots of that here. Um in Alberta, in the area of the Rocky Mountains. Dr. Kramadine, you are a doctor of philosophy from the psychiatry graduate program at the University of Alberta. You have your BSc, your Bachelor of Science, with a double major in biological sciences and science psychology. You are a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Alberta, an associate researcher at the U of A, and adjunct assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry. You're part of the Canadian Society of Evidence-Based Policing, the Canadian Association of Police Governance, and have created sessions for law enforcement and public health conferences in Amsterdam, Prague, Toronto, and Philadelphia. You're also an expert in de-escalation and mental health with pro-training, effective mental health training for police and security professionals. Those are the big words. In simple language, what you do is train people who respond to people in critical moments of need when lives are at stake and help those responders understand how to communicate with those people in distress. That is correct. Um, like, as you say, I, I prepare frontline employees um, with the skills that they need to, I guess, communicate and de-escalate critical instances. And the main goal is to 
like increase the safety of not only the responder interacting, but also the individual that is in distress. So your work would involve police officers, obviously. I can think of security professionals. Who else would you work with? My training, it did start as being delivered to police officers through in-person training. And since then, it has expanded. Um, and now through pro training, I deliver training uh, to other groups, not just police. I deliver training to university protective services. I've done training for bus professionals and housing professionals. Um, in addition, I do training for paramedics or emergency medical services, um, as well as kind of government agencies across Canada. Um, and this training, it's, it's very, it's custom made. It's training that I could really deliver to anybody, um, to retail, to construction, to any sort of group that needs training. I'm able to create it and deliver it. And when we say people in distress, we're talking about people who are facing depression, uh, addiction, schizophrenia, alcohol withdrawal, uh, mania, suicide. Give me an idea of how frequently this might happen when someone is in a potentially life-threatening critical situation. So let's let's say a city of a million people. We have listeners in cities much bigger, but also listeners in cities much smaller. In a city of a million people, how often would this happen? Once a week? Once a month? Right. When it comes down to it, I believe the research shows that it's about one in 50 calls attended to by police is that there's some sort of underlying mental health issue. Um, and I do know that on average in a city of 1 million people, there's about like 400,000 calls in a year. Um, so what that would mean is about 22 calls per day. Police would attend that have a mental health um, underlying issue. I know one of the key strategies in situations like this is to engage people in conversation, not to tell them, hey, calm down. Everything's you shouldn't feel this way. Everything will be all right. That only makes it worse, right? So when they're talking, I call that monologuing um, as a casual reference. Uh, what's happening in the brain of the distressed person when they are talking? So what I would say is one of the most important parts in de-escalation is kind of listening and encouraging dialogue. And what this does is it helps to show empathy, kind of in addition to making sure that the person you're speaking with feels heard. Um, when a person is talking about their distress or monologuing, as you say, uh, this can like both increase trust with this person you're speaking with, uh, but also there's lots of studies showing that like talking about our problems and putting our feelings into words, it produces a therapeutic effect on the brain. Um, and there's lots of fMRI studies or I guess functional magnetic resonance um, imaging studies which kind of shows the increase of blood flow in the brain. Uh, and these studies, they show that by simply naming the emotion, this actually helps to decrease activation in the amygdala. And the amygdala, it's, it's a region associated with kind of that emotion regulation. Part of the limbic system. There, there was a saying when I was just beginning work in stakeholder engagement, and we really wanted people to stop uh, trying to broadcast or, or transmit an explanation to people. We wanted more active listening, deeper listening. There was a saying I came across and I fell in love with it. And it's, it goes like this. I don't learn anything when I'm talking. That sounds great. And what you've just told me is that that's a bunch of hooey. <laughs> I, 
I learn lots when I'm talking. Definitely in terms of learning about how we're feeling and like the specific emotions, because at any given time, there's over three emotions that we are feeling. Um, so if we kind of label them and let others know, it helps us to process our emotions. Well, that's at least three or at max three emotions? At least minimum. Wow. The responders themselves, they must absorb an enormous burden here uh, that what they take upon themselves. I think of what Muhammad Ali did that we talked about off the top. That was a burden that he placed upon himself there. Um, what have you heard from those you've trained? I would say that I've heard that, I guess the general thing is that the skills that I teach them, they, they're able to use kind of every single day when they're on the streets, when they're interacting with those in distress, um, but not only interacting with those in distress, speaking with like everyone, it could be like colleagues and um, partners, children, um, the skills I teach, like they revolve not only around de-escalation, but also around non-escalation where kind of the body language and the word choice that's chosen, it helps to kind of build that connection and help the person kind of um, de-escalate before they become escalated, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, it does. It, it, what are some of the strategic skills involved? Um, situational awareness, verbal de-escalation, active listening does still play a very key role here. Uh, outline some of the things that you teach. Mm -hmm. There's there's definitely many skills. Um, what I would say is that the first step is that like de-escalation, it's, it's successful when communication is kind of respectful and empathetic and very calm. And so these are the main mindsets we need to kind of embody before we enter in any interaction. Um, additionally, we need to kind of know kind of what our goal is before we go into any sort of situation. And usually the goal is to kind of decrease fear or decrease tension and just to kind of show the individual that you're there to help them. Um, then we can get into the key strategies of de-escalation. And these include so many things. I believe there's over 100 skills in de-escalation, uh, but the main ones I'll kind of chat about today would be things like, like how you approach the situation, both kind of verbally with your word choice and non-verbally with your body language. Um, for example, if you are approaching with excessive force, it will actually make the situation worse and will escalate it right away. Uh, it's best to be non-threatening when you're kind of approaching the individual. Then we kind of get into that active listening, like you mentioned. Uh, it's extremely important showing that we, we are listening, that we have that kind of eye contact with the individual we're speaking to. Uh, it just kind of shows the individual that we are there for them, that we care for them, and that we can kind of help them and come up with some solutions with them. Um, some other things to keep in mind are like body language. Body language is extremely important. It's important to be really kind of open with your hands at your side, um, keeping relaxed facial expressions and kind of that focus and respect on the individual. Uh, so as I mentioned, I could I could go on forever. There are over hundreds of specific skills in de-escalation, but I would say those are the main ones. De-escalation. Uh, this is a change of narrative for police in some ways. I, I want to play you a scene from Police Academy 5, which I'm sure you've seen. I'm sure you've seen them all. 
It's from 1988. One of the recurring characters is Sergeant Laverne Hooks, played by Marion Ramsey. She's too soft-spoken to be a real police officer. She can't take charge. <laughs> In this scene, managing a staged protest, she certainly does. Officer, your turn, out here with me. Hell no, we won't go. Escalation is definitely an art, um, and I guess to be in control these days no longer means being kind of threatening and demanding and aggressive and authoritative. It has really now, I would say, morphed into a word that I like to call assertiveness. And assertiveness is really just uh, it's confidence that can be portrayed through both body language as well as vocal tone. Uh, so, for example. Like if we're interacting with somebody and standing tall and we have firm eye contact on them and we're kind of portraying ourselves as somebody that can help while kind of holding a firm voice and kind of clearly stating what needs to happen. Um, that is kind of assertive. It doesn't like demand control, but like control is essentially given because uh, the officer is kind of showing stability, but also they're showing respect. Uh, for the individuals that they're speaking with and uh, more chances often than not, then they will then get respect from the individual that they are speaking with. And I guess trying to help the individual gain a sense of control themselves rather than taking it. Exactly. Cause I would say that like individuals, the reason that they are reaching out for help is because either them or their loved ones, they're in crisis and crisis essentially means a lack of control. So if you have an officer entering a scene, kind of demanding that control, that will actually, it'll make the individual feel kind of even worse. They will feel even more not in control. And it usually ends very negatively uh, just because kind of then mirroring occurs where the individual mirrors your aggressive behavior and then the interaction just escalates even higher into violence usually. In the media, and, and just from the research I did, it was entirely American media, there's been a somewhat narrow view of de-escalation training specifically to, will it actually help reduce police violence, particularly in situations involving race? Uh, those articles suggest there is no conclusive evidence that de-escalation training works. De-escalation training, it's very difficult to evaluate. It costs so much time and money and usually requires the help of the university to help evaluate the training session. Um, this is probably why there's no conclusive evidence that de-escalation training works from a racial perspective, because it's just very difficult and expensive kind of to study and evaluate in the first place. Um, what I do know is that like de-escalation training is not the magic bullet. Like it won't solve negative racial interactions. It's just really a piece of the puzzle, uh, but not the whole solution. Um, what I would say is racism, it usually runs deep into kind of the culture of an organization, 
um, unintentionally at times, and it definitely needs to be addressed by uh, or at an organizational level. Uh, but just to mention, I am definitely not an expert in organizational racism. What I am an expert in is kind of de-escalation and kind of my training program that uses kind of actors and scenario-based role play. Um, and my training is the only evidence-based training program kind of in the world. It has been found to kind of decrease use of physical force by 41% and decrease use of weapon force by 26%. And this is up to six months after training, we studied it. Uh, so I know that it works to train officers in skills uh, that I would say the de-escalation skills that they deserve to kind of keep themselves and others safe. There are several interpretations of the term defund police. In some definitions, it means to redirect funds from police to education and healthcare. In others, it's about reducing the need for criminal justice intervention. What is your perspective when you hear that term defund police, given I know that you feel additional funds are needed for this special kind of training? Definitely. I would say that this is a very complex issue with many moving parts. Um, there's, there's lots of studies that show that like the primary reason recruits join the police service is to kind of help others in the community and really to support them in their role. We need to make sure that they have kind of adequate funding to train in those softer skills like de-escalation. Uh, just so that in times of kind of fear and stress, uh, it's those de-escalation skills that become reflexive rather than their use of force skills. Um, additionally, I, I do believe that like the public health is another piece of the solution. Um, and that we need kind of adequate funding for like early intervention and that prevention of mental health crisis um, and just that continued treatment and follow-up care for individuals in crisis. Um, I would also like to say that like mental health, it's extremely complicated. There is no easy remedy um, and we could also make better use of our existing resources. Um, currently, like police officers attending hospitals with mental health patients, like wait on average from four to 12 hours to see a doctor. And this in itself creates lots of overtime costs. Okay, let's take new recruits. And if a new recruit is spending 60 hours on firearms training and 50-50 hours on defensive tactics, and by the way, I pulled those numbers right out of my hat. So if the numbers are actually very different, just go with me here. How many hours should they spend on de-escalation training? There should be like no longer be training that is kind of siloed into distinct categories of firearms training and defensive tactics and de-escalation training. I believe that like de-escalation and communication training needs to be kind of incorporated and present in every single session that is delivered um, because like communication, like it happens in every single interaction um, de-escalation skills, it should be the main focus to prevent these violent encounters. So I do believe that it needs adequate attention and adequate hours committed to it um, every year, I would say even similar to kind of firearms training hours and defensive tactic hours. I really appreciate your time today, Dr. Kremity. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to send a message to my guest, Dr. Yasmeen Kremadine, you can email her at Yasmin, Y-A-S-M-E-E-N-K, 
at protraining.com. We've put that in the show notes. If you liked what you heard today, we're hoping you choose to subscribe to Stories and Strategies and receive updated episodes automatically. Hoping you'll also follow us on Twitter. We are easy to find. It's under comms underscore podcast. And we'll follow back. We're also hoping you choose to follow and rate this podcast on any directory you're listening on. And would you do us a favor? Would you recommend this podcast to one friend? If you have an idea for an episode, or you just want to tell us something, send us a note at info at jgrcommunications.com. Thanks for listening.